Turn your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 20. We come to a critical section in the book of Jeremiah. No date is given for the prophecy that's delivered in this 20th chapter, but apparently it's delivered during the early years of the reign of King Jehoiakim. The good king Josiah has died. He's been succeeded by King Jehoiakim. He died in 609 B.C. And uh, in 605 B.C., the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's reign, uh, Jeremiah is forced to go into hiding. So apparently this prophecy takes place sometime in between there. Right about this time, uh, Babylon begins marching. Uh, on Judah because of Judah's uh, rebellion and uh, uh, it's uh, allying itself with Egypt and uh, the first thing that we encounter at this critical point is the attack on Jeremiah by Pasher now, the background of this, what provoked the attack, is found in the last part of the 19th chapter. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Then came Jeremiah from Topheth, whither the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks that they might not hear my words. He pronounces this right in the temple courts. And uh, this is too much for Pasher, and so we read in uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20, about Pasher placing Jeremiah in the stocks. Verse 1, Now Pasher, the son of Emmer the priest, who is also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. The attack on Jeremiah. Uh, the scourging of Jeremiah. Pasher was the uh, chief governor. He was in charge of the temple police. It was his job to see there was no disturbance in the temple courts. And when Jeremiah comes with this prophecy of doom toward the nation, he feels that's too much. And he has him scourged, very painfully whipped, and then placed publicly in the stocks right at one of the busiest gates that leads from the temple to the city. A very painful position as his, as his hands and his feet are in these stocks and uh, as he is in a very cramped position and has his lacerated back there and is exposed to the sneers and curses of the people. There's the attack on Jeremiah. I want to jump ahead to verse 7 because I believe here we have the account of Jeremiah's emotional struggle during the 
day and night that he spends in those stocks. It could be that uh, what we have recorded concerning this struggle is something that takes place in the solitude of his home after he's released from the stocks, but I'm inclined to agree with Matthew, Henry, and others that what we have here is Jeremiah's recounting of the struggle that was going on in his soul after this kind of treatment, simply for obeying the Lord. Uh, the first thing that he tells us in this seventh verse uh, has to do with the fear that seized him. In uh, verse 7, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. There's fear. And wrapped up in this fear is the feeling that God has deceived him. Oh, Lord, thou hast deceived me. What a statement. Why did he feel that way? Well, you remember way back when God first called Jeremiah to the office of prophet. Jeremiah was timidly drawing back. He said, I cannot speak. I'm a child. God said, Say not that I'm a child. Thou shalt speak what I command thee, and go to those whom I send thee. And then he said in chapter 1, verse 8, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And apparently Jeremiah had done what we so often do. He'd taken that promise and he had read certain assumptions into that promise that God never intended. When God said, I am with thee to deliver thee, Jeremiah said, that means I won't be hurt. Did God ever promise any man he wouldn't be hurt? Can you give me an account of any man of God in Scripture that hadn't been hurt? But that's the way Jeremiah read the promise, you see. And as a result, when he got hurt, why, he felt that somebody jerked the rug out from under him, that God had let him down, that God had deceived him, that God wasn't faithful to his promises. And where does that leave you? I've had many people in our church come to me when something happened. Maybe a child goes astray. Maybe they lose their job, whatever the trouble may be. And they say, God didn't keep his promise to me. And I said, wait a minute, let's read that promise. God is always faithful. But you've assumed certain things that God never promised. You know, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's the cults. Here's a sign of a cult. The cults promise, don't worry. You join us, you believe our teaching, and uh, you'll have no more trouble. Everything will be brightness and light. That's the way the cults speak, and you can spot it. But that's not the way Christianity speaks. Christianity says, in this world you shall have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Do not fear. Very important that we are careful that we interpret the Scripture by the Scripture, and that uh, when we read the promises of God, we read it in the light of the context of the entirety of Scripture, and we don't read more into it than God is intending. Someone goes through 
poverty and trial and sorrow and suffering, and they come and they say, where's the abundant life that God promised me that I would have? And they thought abundant life meant no troubles, no suffering, no trials. And God never promised that. Not for one second. He still promised abundant life. He promised life on a quality and a level that the non-Christian will never experience. And in the long run, and even now. But he never promised life without troubles. He promises troubles. All they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He promises that. He promises whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. He promises that. I heard uh, a tape by Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot, uh, or Elizabeth Elliot Leach, as her name is now, spoke at Urbana, 76, a great student missionary convention where some 18,000 were present this year in Urbana, December uh, 76. And uh, she addressed herself to the topic of the glory of God's will. She said that uh, she was in Europe, staying with some people there, and they owned a, a sheep a farm, in effect. They raised sheep. And uh, one morning she got up and she looked out the window and she saw her host on horseback with his collie dog as they took this herd of sheep and they they herded them toward a sheep dip. Very unpleasant process for a sheep to be put into this sheep dip uh, which will clean him of the uh, insects and the infections and so on. Very unpleasant as he's ducked under and then when he tries to get out he's pushed under again. And uh, she was amazed as she watched the teamwork between the man and his dog. The man had a little silver whistle that human ear couldn't hear, but the dog could hear. And the dog was trained to the nth degree. And, and the master would blow the whistle and the dog would immediately look to him for a signal, would fly around one side of the herd and catch a sheep that was going astray and nip its heels and get it back in. And then it would be back at the trough as soon as there was a, a sheep going into the dip and it would try to climb out and the dog would snarl at him and keep him in until the master was ready for him to be out. And then he'd whistle back around after another one. And just the fantastic thing of the glory of a dog in his teamwork with his master doing exactly what it was designed and trained to do. The beauty of it. She said as she watched, certain things came to mind. The absolute trust of that dog in the master. The instant obedience. The joy that that dog had in doing its master's will. Tail wagging every minute with excitement and joy. And she said, now that should be a picture of us and our master as we seek to carry out his will. The first thing doing the will of God calls for is absolute trust. Some would call it blind faith. It's not blind faith. Why? Jesus came. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus gave evidence of being God become man. The ultimate evidence was his resurrection. 
He came and died that we might be forgiven for our sins. He took our place as our substitute. How can you have blind trust in a Savior like that? There's no such thing in Christianity as blind trust. It's trust built on a rock. It's trust built on evidence. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's not blind faith. Trust in our master. Did the dog understand the pattern? She said, does he understand what's going on? He said, no, the dog just knows to obey. He doesn't understand the pattern. He doesn't have to understand. He trusts his master. Do the sheep understand? No, the sheep don't understand. They don't understand why they're being put through that misery. They don't trust. They fight it. But we're to be like that dog. Absolute trust. Instant obedience. Doing the will of God means that I will to do his will. Like Jesus. Jesus came into this world and he said, I came not to do my own will but the will of him that sent me. That kind of setting your face like a flint to do God's will. Even if you don't understand, you don't have to understand, you can trust him. And then she said it means joy. It means joy, like that dog's tail wagging every minute. And she said, wait a minute now, wait a minute. Before you too easily say, yes, it means joy to do God's will, think. That doesn't mean no suffering. Elizabeth Elliot, of course, was married to Jim Elliot. They were married for two years. Jim Elliot was one of five missionaries who made contact down in South America with a tribe that no white man had ever penetrated with the gospel of Christ. And they carefully approached that tribe. They prayed. They left gifts, and the tribe left gifts, and they... They did everything they knew to ensure that this hostile tribe was going to be friendly. And then the day came when they felt led of God to make a direct approach. They landed their plane on a, on a strip there, a beach near where the uh, tribe lived, and were all speared to death right where they landed. Before they went, they and their wives joined hands the night before and they sung that great missionary hymn uh, that uh, speaks of We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping, tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. But a, a spear found its way through that shield and defender, didn't it? Did God deceive them? No, God didn't deceive them. Did she understand? No, she didn't understand. Does she have to understand? No, she doesn't have to understand. Can you have joy still? Yes, you can have joy still. As you have trust that God doesn't make mistakes. And that our joy to do the Master's will. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the shame, despising the cross, and now is set down at the right hand of the Father. It's the joy of the corn of wheat that falls into the ground and dies and brings forth fruit. And there's no telling how many men and women 
are on the mission field today. How many hundreds and even thousands because of those five martyred young men and the stories of their lives and the books that have been written and the biographies and how it's challenged young man and young woman after young man and young woman to follow as Jim Elliott followed and as those other followed. The corn of wheat, if it falls into the ground and dies, will bring forth fruit. There's joy. But Jeremiah felt deceived. He felt the derision, the stinging of it. He says, I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Verse 10, For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting, saying, Peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. He felt their derision. He felt the danger he was in. And so he came to a decision. Nobody likes to be mocked. Nobody likes to be beaten and put in stocks, whatever form it may take. And so he came to a decision. He said, I'm not going to speak up for the Lord anymore. In verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. What a decision for a believer to make. You ever said anything like that? Did you witness to someone and it cost you a girlfriend? I've seen, I've seen a couple dating, the girl all hopeful, and then she witnessed and she was dropped. And I've seen a boy do the same. And I've seen a man who was the vice president of his company and he stood up for his faith and he was out of that vice presidency in a hurry. And what do you resolve when that happens? Do you say, well, that's the last time I'm going to witness for Christ. I won't speak anymore in his name. I was reading a, a young doctor in China. In the book, The Chinese Church That Will Not Die. And this young doctor had worked so hard to get his medical degree there in communist China. He was a Christian. But one of the rules of the hospital was, you must not, you must not speak to others or to any patient concerning your faith. And he abode by that rule for a time. But you know, Jeremiah said he couldn't stick with that resolution because countering that resolution was a conflagration, a burning fire. Then said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with holding it in, with forbearing, and I could not stay. And the young doctor had the same problem. And he had a patient he was working on who was dying. And he knew he was dying. And inwardly, the Spirit of God began to pressure him and says, go and tell, the inner voice was insistent, go and tell him the gospel before he dies. This patient is your responsibilities. Your future is God's responsibility. Oh, he wrestled with it and struggled with it. 
I can't, I can't. It's not allowed. All the sounds and activities of a busy hospital were around him, but there was no escape. Go and tell, go and tell. He waited for an opportune moment. When the patient was alone, he asked, Have you ever heard of the name of Jesus? The patient looked blank. And the doctor told how Jesus came to this world to be the Savior of men. And the seaman, this patient of seaman, felt it couldn't include him. He'd led such a bad life. The doctor said, No. No, he died for you too. He died for sinful men. And in a few words, he sketched an outline of the crucifixion and the resurrection. He said, There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Well, I want Jesus. I want forgiveness, said the patient. And together they prayed. And he invited Christ into his life. And in a few minutes, he said, I'm not afraid of death. Now I will see God. He lingered a few more minutes and then breathed his last. And then there was a tap on the doctor's shoulder. A nurse standing outside the door had seen it. She'd reported it. He was wanted at the office. He was immediately removed from his position and so on. But he had to speak. God won't let us be quiet. That burning in the bones is too much. We see him moving from fear to faith in verse 11. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, terrible one. His conviction of God's presence, that word that was in his heart, begins to flower and reminds him of God's promises and that God is with him. And he's just misunderstood the promises. doesn't mean that God has deserted him, the fact that he's hurting and been hurt. Therefore, my persecutors shall stumble. God is powerful. He's with me. They will stumble. They shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed. They shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. And he commits his cause to God. O Lord of hosts that tries the righteous and seeth the reins of the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them. I won't avenge myself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. I commit my cause to you. Unto thee have I opened my cause. Then he calls on himself to praise the Lord. If you believe that, praise the Lord. Sing unto the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. For he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. He will be with me and he will deliver me. He comes to faith through that word generating in his heart. But he then begins to feel the pain again. Ray Steadman says it's long about 3 a.m. in the morning by now and he's been scrunched over and that pain in the back is unbearable and his back is bleeding and raw and he gets a thinking about it again and about the fact that what about tomorrow and the day after and the day after and if this is what's happened the first time what's going to happen next time and he comes faint-hearted and he cries out and he says cursed be the day wherein I was born let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed we pray and bless our mothers and talk about it being mother's day he said I wish I hadn't had a mother Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. Let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and repented not. 
and let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontime. Because he slew me not from the womb. Oh, if that man had just, as I was being born, if he'd just taken a sword and killed me so that my mother's womb had been my grave, or that my mother might have been my grave in her womb to be always great with me. And then his conviction that life, it means this kind of suffering, it's just not worth living. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame. He's fainted, hadn't he? He's given into it all. You ever feel that way? Luther says if you've never felt like that, you've never been in that kind of situation. Luther was conscious of tremendous struggles of that same nature. As he gives in here to his self-pity, as he gives in to all of these feelings of fear and frustration, it was wrong, and he was wrong. He was wrong in his estimate of things. Is life worth living? If you've got to suffer, was his life worthwhile? Or was it worth it? He was wrong. His life was the most worthwhile life of his day. There was another man who suffered terribly, more than any man ever suffered. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Angels celebrated his birth. Was his birth and life worth living? Amen. So it involves suffering to do the will of God. That doesn't make a life worthless. It gives it real worth. We see the fainting. As we've looked first at the attack, second at the account of the struggle within, but third the announcement of God's judgment on Pasher and Judah. Look back to verse 3. This is the next day, the next morning. It came to pass on the morrow that Pasher brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. What will Jeremiah do? Will he give in now and keep silent? Or will he dare again to speak the word of the Lord? Then said Jeremiah unto him, the Lord hath not called thy name Pasher, but Magor Misabib. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. What is he doing? He's right back on the job right back announcing publicly in the face of all the derision and the danger the word that's in his bones that God's given him to say. He's recovered, hadn't he? And we see his release and his remarks and his recovery. How did he recover? Well, the ultimate reason for his recovery was that burning in his bones, that word in his heart that overcame the faintness in his heart. That was the ultimate reason, the word and the Spirit of God overcoming the fear, not letting him quit, God keeping his servant, calling him back, working within, encouraging him through that word as that word begins to again seep into his consciousness and he remembers. 
as he refuses to give in to self-pity. We sung a, a hymn a little earlier, All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort. Here's a person with peace and comfort. Here, by faith in him to dwell. Their comfort is related to their faith. For I know whate'er befall me, whate'er befall me, this is a girl that was blinded at the age of six by a quack doctor. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. There was a girl who wasn't going to give in. Fanny Crosby was blinded at the age of six. At the age of nine, she wrote this. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. The resolve not to give in to self-pity, but to trust the Lord, knowing that Jesus doeth all things well. He refused to give in to his self-pity. He relied on the Lord and his promises and his purposes. Just as Fanny Crosby there. Hanley Moole, a bishop, great bishop in England, on one occasion went to a mining town where a mine had just caved in and he addressed the families of the miners who were entombed underground. What do you say to somebody like that? He held up a piece of embroidery, the backside, all tangled webs, making no sense. And he talked about uh, the fact that it looked like nothing but a mistake. But then he turned it around and said, God is love. He says, we see the underside, God sees the upper side. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hands as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Oh, brethren, we need to be like that collie dog. Absolute trust, instant obedience, willing to do the Master's will, joy, Joy in spite of suffering, trusting him and experiencing that joy. We need to remember that even when we do faint, as you will and I will, that we have a forgiving God who receives his servant back and puts him back to work when we come back, when that fire in our bones overcomes that faintness in our hearts. And we need above all that fire in our bones. That fire is first Jesus Christ in the heart by his spirit. Have you ever committed your life to Christ? It's Christ in your heart. And then his word absorbed, 
So we know those promises, and we know the correct way to apply those promises. And when the world sets upon us with all of its fury and hatred, then we haven't got the rug jerked out from under us. But we know how to assure ourselves. We know how to stand on that word. That word rises up as a conflagration within and won't let us keep silent and won't let us be faint-hearted. We need that word in our hearts. That speaks of discipline. That speaks of these yawn patrols. You want the word in your heart? Best way I know for a man to get the word in his heart is to get in the yawn patrol. Because you've got to come and quote your verse. Best way possible. A small nucleus of men or women committed to each other for the regular disciplines of the Christian life. That's what it's all about. That's how you get his word in your heart. Martin Luther on one occasion... Twelve years after he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chassel, became very despairing and discouraged and depressed. And he tried everything. He tried friends and singing and eating, and it didn't help. He went home, finally got on his knees, and he cried out, and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in an instant he had the answer. My God, God is the answer. He got his eyes off the circumstances, off his feelings. He got them back on God. And God's word, as it welled up in his heart, the 46th Psalm, and he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Do you have Christ in your heart? Are you hiding his word in your heart? Maybe you've fainted. He's ready to receive you back. Maybe you've made a decision not to speak anymore. He's not going to let you stay there. You've never received Christ. There's the place to start. Or maybe if you have, you need to repent of some refusal to take a stand for him. Let us pray. If you've never received Christ, as your master, never trusted him as that one who died for you, as that patient did with the doctor, won't you right now with me pray in your heart? Pray like this. Lord Jesus, I believe there's none other name whereby we must be saved. I want you in my life. I invite you in as Lord. I trust you as Savior to forgive my sin. Make me into the person you want me to be. I know it will involve suffering, but it will involve joy also. And I thank you. Amen.